Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is Duray. Welcome to Pod Save the People. As usual, it's me, Sam, Kaya, and Diara talking about the underreported news this week. And then I sit down and talk with Gregory Washington, president of George Mason University, to discuss the issues that colleges are facing as they reopen in this new reality. And my advice for this week is to show up, but showing up isn't enough. You got to show up and do something. That people talk about like being in the room is half the battle. You got to, and it is true that it is hard to make an impact in a place you just refuse to go or won't go or aren't there for whatever reason, right? Whether your way of being there is on the internet or in person, I think that people confuse that as being all you got to do. Showing up is necessary but not sufficient, right? You got to show up to be immersed, to have proximity, to understand. You also have to do once you show up. A lot of people are, quote, showing up and not really doing much else. Let's make sure that it's always a both and. Let's go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger at Diara Ballinger on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is DeRay at D-R-E-Y on Twitter. So we're happen to be recording at the same time as the iconic verses between Patti LaBelle and Gladys Knight. So if we sound like we're rushed, it's because we are. We want to know what's going on. My money's on Patti LaBelle. I'm a Patti LaBelle person. I don't know where the rest of these folks stand, but I'm, I'm with Patti. So hopefully she takes an eyelash or two off tonight. <laughs> I can't wait to see. <laughs> You know she's going to throw a shoe, right? She is definitely going to throw a shoe. Have you seen the Apple TV commercials? I think it's Apple TV. They have commercials where Patty and Gladys are cooking. Gladys cooks a lovely Nilla wafer banana pudding. And Patty slays a whole entire Thanksgiving dinner and then pops a little patty pie in the oven (laughs) for good measure. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Somebody in the uh, in the chat for the verses said, "I'm passing out the peanut brittle." I love it, <laughs> and it's like you better go ask your grandma for that that peppermint. Get that peppermint out grandma's purse right now, because this is oh, this is it. Let's go, Glad. Wait, and Gladys and Patty have a song together, don't they? Gladys, something, mm, 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 mm. yeah, they do. They do. Well, the thing is, you know they're going to sing. They're, they came from that generation where you had to be able to, it was no auto-tune. You couldn't spruce up the, they, you actually had to be able to sing. <laughs> no Drake on the track. So you know, you know they're going to be in here singing. So that was a Uh-oh. low blow to Drake. Uh, that was low blow. Okay, I mean, DR. I mm, might listen mm, to Drake mm, if he can get on a song with Patty. <laughs> I will buy that on iTunes. Send all of your um, hate emails about uh, Drake to Diara. <laughs> Do not send them to anybody else in the pod. There is a song called Sisters in the Name of Love in 1986. How about that? I think that's the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> I think that's it. There might be some more. Uh, yeah, they also have a song called I Don't Do Duets, which is probably pretty funny. Uh, but you, the setup, they got these two little white leather chairs and a Ciroc bouquet what? Okay, in the Ciroc, middle. we get it. We get it. You're a sponsor. We <laughs> get it. you by we Ciroc. It. Please, nobody poor. Gladys or Patty. Kaya, you were somebody's auntie for a second right here, holding your iPad up to the thing. That was auntie right there. You're like, baby, did you see? Listen, did you understand? I had a milestone birthday this year, and I am embracing auntiehood. It's all good. I love it. One of the best comments I saw on Twitter was some he was like, uh, my mother asked me, how do I see Patty and them? And they were like, oh, it comes out next week on YouTube. They were like, we're not even doing the whole, like, <laughs> I don't want to be the tech team today. Just watch it on YouTube when it's up. <laughs> it's like, I love it. 
Uh, and now the news. So uh, my news is about California, where if you're on the West Coast, you definitely know this is happening. If you're not on the West Coast, you've probably heard that there have been wildfires all across the West Coast uh, and terrible air quality, uh, sort of unprecedented combination of climate change, uh, 120 degrees in some places in LA County and across the state, uh, and a range of other factors that have combined to create unprecedented wildfires across the state. Uh, and in the midst of that, uh, Governor Newsom just signed legislation this past week, uh, AB 2147, uh, which for the first time creates a pathway for uh, incarcerated firefighters in California uh, to be able to petition a judge to expunge their record so that they can, after being released, uh, work as firefighters. Um, so this is a long time coming. We've talked about this uh, in the past, uh, but just to refresh your memory, California is a state that ever since World War II has created a program whereby folks who are incarcerated are working as firefighters on the front lines, making a dollar an hour plus uh, about $3 a day base rate uh, to put their lives on the line uh, for work that after they are released because of a past felony conviction, they're not able to actually get an EMT license and become a firefighter. And so this legislation creates a pathway for them to do it. it do, it's not automatic. You have to petition. Uh, that petition has to be granted by a judge. Uh, there are a set of serious offenses that uh, if you have a conviction for things like murder, you cannot uh, then become a firefighter. Uh, but uh, again, this is uh, a incremental change, but nevertheless, something that folks have been organizing for, have been pushing for for a long time. Um, just to give you a sense of the scale of this in California, 20% currently of all firefighters fighting those wildfires are incarcerated firefighters. So uh, we're talking about about 1,300 incarcerated firefighters across the state um, that are putting their lives on the line right now to fight that massive fire. I want to zoom out and talk about uh, wages and incarceration and, and what does working in jail look like uh, at scale. So there are a lot of myths that happen around prison and jail. And one of the myths is this idea that the majority of people who are incarcerated are actually working for private companies. Like that is this, that's like a myth that keeps going round and round. And what we know is that the majority of incarcerated people work in jobs that actually support the day-to-day -day operation of prisons. So like laundry, food service. And as Sam said, they're paid in between as little as like, you know, 80 cents a day to a little bit over $3 a day on average. And in almost every prison, uh, work is mandatory. There are very few rules, very few regulations, and very few things that are standardized. But remember, only a small fraction of incarcerated people work for private companies. It's less than 1% of people who are incarcerated are employed by private companies uh, through this federal program. And about 6% of people in state prisons work for state-owned industries that make things like desks and chairs and stuff like that for lower wages. But the majority of people who are incarcerated who work, they work for some part of the government apparatus or they work for the upkeep of the prison. And I say that to say that like it is even more heinous that we pay uh, people incarcerated such low wages given that the work is government work in the end. So this is good, Sam. I'm excited about it. And it just reminds us of how much prison labor exploits people within the government sector. I'll pick up on that thought, DeRay. I thought it was hopeful, in fact, um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, I think that giving folks opportunities to be gamefully employed when they return home is incredibly important. And beginning firefighters or just starting out firefighters in California make $40,000 a year. There are not a lot of jobs that returning citizens get that they can make $40,000 a year. I think there's also the impact around diversifying the, the ranks of the firefighters. Most firefighters, something like 96% of firefighters are white and male. And there are men and women in prison who are now getting the skills and the training that they need to be firefighters, which can open up, I think, that uh, particular field to different folks. And so I'm hopeful about what may happen as a result of this law. I guess my feeling about this is that for a lot of these folks, you basically have to risk your life fighting a fire to be able to have the simple right of having your record expunged. Taking 
another look at it in terms of these are things that folks who have spent time incarcerated, have served their terms, who are coming out, who want to be, Kai, to your point, who are now going to come into back into community, into society. And we're saying, here's a way to do that. Risk your life in order to do that. I mean, I'm obviously, like, I'm, I'm reducing this a little bit, but I, I hope that Gavin Newsom, being as progressive as he is, also is looking at ways where folks can actually get their records expunged, particularly if they don't have, you know, and I'm sure it's, it's like this in California, if you can't get your record expunged if it's a violent crime, et cetera, et cetera. But I just feel like there need to be protocols in place so that folks aren't having to wait years and years and years to get their records expunged, to be able to be an MET or a firefighter. Yeah. And, you know, just to build off that point, Diara, and also to some of your points, DeRay, you know, this is something that it seems like it is motivated in part by, you know, a recognition of how essential firefighters are, how in short supply firefighters are in California. And and it's sad that it's taken this unprecedented wildfire uh, and natural disaster to sort of push the government and the California state legislature into finally taking action like this. And even then, it seems to be like the bare minimum that they could do. Um, It's not automatic. You have to, you know, petition for it. You might not get approved. Everybody else who wasn't fighting fires, but nevertheless was incarcerated or doing other jobs uh, while incarcerated, like don't get access to those benefits. So, you know, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Um, And even outside of California, you know, there are states where the picture is even worse, where in places like Florida and Georgia and Alabama, you know, folks who are incarcerated are required to work. They're required to work full time and they are not paid anything. I mean, overall, what I'm reminded is that, you know, this issue tends to be state level. Each state prison system sets its own rules about uh, what work folks who are incarcerated are required to do, how much, if anything, they get paid. Um, And those things can be changed. They can be changed by state legislatures. In some places, they can be changed by departments of corrections or prison boards. Um, So there are real people right now who have the power to make sure um, that folks aren't being exploited. And uh, I hope that more will step up, um, like California has started to do, uh, to actually make good on and, and honor the work that folks are doing incarcerated. My news comes from the BBC, which covered a few reports that show that Black Americans are more likely to be vegan than other Americans. In fact, Black Americans are three times as likely to be vegan or vegetarian than other Americans. The reason why many Black Americans uh, choose veganism is, in fact, because of health issues. What we found is that reducing or eliminating animal products reduces the likelihood of developing chronic diseases like diabetes and high blood pressure, which plague the Black community. And according to a Pew Research Center survey, 8% of Black Americans are strict vegans or vegetarians, compared to just 3% of the general population. And a recent Gallup poll found that 31% of non-white Americans had reduced their meat consumption in the past year compared to only 19% of white Americans. You uh, see a new generation of vegan influencers, people like Tabitha Brown, um, celebrities like Beyonce and Lizzo and Venus Williams, who've all gone vegan or tried veganism. In fact, Beyonce is partnering in a plant-based meal delivery service. As I mentioned, African Americans have higher rates of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and cancer than most other groups, in part because our diet is, on average, higher in salt and fat and lower in fruits and vegetables. But uh, racial injustice, in fact, contributes to the poor diet that we eat. Socioeconomic factors like poverty and living far from green grocers and easy access to fast food make it harder for African Americans to eat healthy. Um, But there is a clear connection between veganism and black culture. And we are seeing that being reinforced and celebrated in new ways. Um, First of all, there's a long history of black veganism in the United States and abroad. Uh, Many people know about the Rastafarian religion, which started in Jamaica in the 1930s, where there's a concentration on eating idle foods, foods that are organically and locally grown and plant-based. Um, A number of traditional African cuisines are largely plant-based and rich in dark leafy greens and legumes. 
American Civil Rights Movement, uh, Dick Gregory, who marched with Dr. King, famous comedian and, and civil rights advocate, gave up meat in 1965. And so throughout our history, there have been numerous examples. And throughout our many cultures represented by the diaspora, um, there is veganism, there is uh, vegetarianism, there is a plant-based lifestyle. Um, in fact, there's a woman named Tracy McCorder uh, who wrote a 2010 cookbook called By Any Greens Necessary, specifically aimed at black women. And she's launching a campaign online to try to get 10,000 black women to go vegan. She says that chronic disease and systemic racism are inextricable and that it's urgent for us to take care of ourselves and to eat well so that we have the energy to fight these battles. Kaya, thank you for this because I feel like it's, getting us one step closer to having Tabitha Brown join us. So shout out to Tabitha Brown. If y'all are not following Tabitha Brown on Instagram, <laughs> you are not, <laughs> you are not living life. I don't know how to follow her on the TikTok, but on the Instagram, I can do that very well. And TikTok. she's wonderful. You know, there's a movement to get her to be the voice of Siri, right? Because her voice is so calming and soothing. Listen. I'm all for it. When is the election for that? I feel like everybody has like their <laughs> suggestion of who they want the voice of Siri to be. And like there has to at some point be like a, a vote. I didn't like, we got to figure this out. Like we need some options. I agree. I didn't know there was a push to get her to be the voice of Siri. That'd be great. She is the best vegan, the most popular vegan we know right now. So as a household, we were vegan for about three months, like at the start of the quarantine. It was wonderful, but it also was like when everybody kind of was in the spirit of, oh, we're just home, so we're going to cook. And now we're all sick of cooking. So um, now we've kind of moved away from our plant-based eating, but still try to um, hold on to that three to four times a week. But I think it's a, this is a real thing, and I think what we eat is obviously political. One of my favorite Tupac lines, change the way we eat, change the way we live. You know, when we can, I think we should, one, try to understand plant-based living and why it's important and why we can be healthier and stronger. Again, like we all need to be paying more attention just about food and where our food's coming from and what that means for our communities um, and who has access and who, and who doesn't. So I think this conversation is a good one. And I think, you know, Kaya, also just the narrative around, you know, veganism is a white thing. That's obviously so far from the truth. But yeah, this is, I think this is a great one to highlight. Thank you. So my news this week is from CNN. It's a, a story on 19 families, 19 black families who purchased nearly 97 acres of land in Georgia to create a city that's safe for black folks. So I just thought this was, I don't know, it just hit my feed and it made me smile. I think we're all looking for those small things to make us smile these days. <laughs> um, but essentially it's about two black women because, of course, that's where every great story starts. Two black women who saw a town for sale in, in rural Georgia. And after doing some further investigating, the town actually wasn't for sale, but there was a bunch of acres nearby. And so they decided to buy it. So Ashley Scott, who's a real estate agent, and her partner, investor, and entrepreneur, Renee Walters, you know, they decided that they wanted to create a, a safe space for black people. And so they have purchased this land. They've gotten other families on board. My favorite line of this is just the first line of the story. Welcome to freedom, exclaims real estate agent Ashley Scott as she surveys the nearly 97 acres of land that she and a group of 19 black families purchased in August. It's just interesting the way black folks roll because for them, it's very much about creating safe space and creating pro-black space. And so they're completely open to this being a diverse community but again, like they wanted to really be built on the tenets and values of black folks being safe and what that means. Um, so this comes out of like the history, of like a lot of black um, cooperatives and of lots of black towns. You know, in D.C., I grew up really close to Anacostia. I grew up in Hillcrest and in Anacostia, what Berry Farms, which is now going to be completely gentrified. But Berry Farms started as a, a town for freed enslaved people. Yeah, so I just, I, I wonder what this movement will, will mean. I wonder if other folks are thinking about this in terms of those who are privileged enough to be able to buy space and buy land, um, what their decisions will be given kind of the moment that we're in. So I don't know, I just found this one interesting, y'all. I thought this was super inspiring. One, just as a way to self-determine, right? At the end of the day, nobody is going to come and save us. We need to save ourselves. And they have decided to 
you know, take it to the land and create their own community. And this is actually quite historical for us in the period of Reconstruction right after the Civil War. There were freedmen's towns that sprouted up all over the United States. And in fact, the the state that had the most freedmen's towns were Texas, uh, which Mm. was Texas, which is sort of interesting to me. Um, But I mean, I was walking in Central Park at the beginning of the pandemic and stumbled across Seneca Village, which was one of the first black freedmen's towns right here in New York. Or, you know, I know about Weeksville in Brooklyn or uh, Sag Harbor. Eastville was actually a freedmen's town. And if you do a little Eatonville in Florida, right, if you do a little bit of digging, there were freedmen's towns all over the United States. And in fact, the U.S. government had set up the Freedmen's Bureau to support the economic cooperation and development of African-Americans, except they didn't and saw us doing our thing, crushing it in the 12 years that was Reconstruction. And then, oh, my God, the Klan and Jim Crow. And don't get me started. Um, but the tradition of freedmen's towns, I think, is a rich one. I think we're at a point where going back to the land is going to be critically important for us and determining our own, how we want to be in community with ourselves, how we want to live together, how we want to govern ourselves, I think is an exciting opportunity. And I think we'll start to see more cooperatives like this, buying land and self-determining. Yeah, Diara, this was, I remember when I, when this came across my timeline and it just was such a like timeline cleanse. It was something that just completely changed my mood because over the past, you know, years and years and years, seeing all of the articles about uh, black farmland uh, diminishing over time and how white folks had sort of underhandedly exploited and confiscated and stolen black land over the years, just seeing those numbers decline over time, I hadn't fully appreciated how we could like directly fight back and like directly be like, you know what, we're gonna buy up land. We're actually gonna increase the amount of land we have in a dramatic way and like create a new city or a completely new community. And it like gave me hope in a way that was really powerful. Um, again, this is like it's at the very beginning stages. Obviously, there are a lot of challenges uh, historically with white people. You know, we all know about Black Wall Street. We all know about how um, when black people have created independent communities um, that have generated wealth and opportunity, uh, they have tended to be undermined or burned down or otherwise sabotaged by white folks. And so obviously I think folks will are thinking deeply about that, have to be thinking deeply about that now. And, and what does it mean to sort of protect the gains and defend and make sure that Freedom Georgia is sustainable and, and not sort of susceptible to that. But I think it's really exciting. It's really hopeful. Um, it's something that was incredible to see, and I'm excited to see how it evolves. Jumping off of what Kai said, you know, by 1888, there were at least 200 black towns and communities that had been established, all black. And what's interesting is that one of the ways a white supremacy works is that it erases history, so we always feel like we are starting anew. Starting. That is like right. that is a part of the strategy. So when you see an all black town, immediately people are like, "Can black people really govern themselves? Can they set up the infrastructure to do it?" Like. It's that line of thought that goes because you're like, well, where is there an all black town? There are towns where like the leadership is all black, but is it, you know, like that, that's how it happens. Mm -hmm. So going off of what Sam said is that one of the reasons why they destroyed those towns was to also destroy the image of black people being Mm self-sufficient, black people managing themselves, to destroy the history and the narrative of black leadership, right? So I'm interested in this moment, like how freedom can uh, run counter to that disparaging narrative that just does damage, that makes it seem like the only leaders we've ever had are in white-led towns. You're like, that's not true. That part of the explicit end of Reconstruction was actually to destroy the notion of Black uh, leadership and Black strength, right? So that's why this is interesting to me. The strategy behind buying it is interesting to me. Like the the plan for what they want to do with it is interesting, uh, and I'm hopeful. Okay, so my news is about COVID. There's a lot of, you know, COVID is still going and Lord knows there are a lot of uh, experts who think that we're going to get the second wave of COVID as soon as we get into the fall and the winter. But, you know, there's been a lot of conversation about who gets to work from home and, you know, all of us on the pod get to work from home in some capacity uh, or if not completely work from home. And there was a new study that just came out uh, from the Census Bureau Household Pulse Survey. And I was fascinated because what they find 
is that more than 70% of households earning more than $100,000 said they were able to substitute telecommuting for some in-person work. Like they were able to work from home. Uh, By comparison, only 27% of households with annual incomes under $75,000 said that somebody in their home, somebody in their home was able to telecommute. And just seeing the data and seeing it so disparate that like the wealthy people are the people able to work from home. They are the people who are able to like stay safe in this moment when you have to social distance, take the least amount of risks. And then it is people who have the least amount of money are the people who don't get to telecommute, who are forced to come to work. They are essential in the coding of the employment narrative. And it was just really interesting to see the data. We obviously had already thought this before, but just to see it laid out with all the income levels, it really is sort of wild because you just see how people with means, not because they have some gift, not because there's like some special whatever, literally just because of a wage, they are protected in a moment where there's a pandemic in a way that poor people just are not. So the other thing that was interesting about this survey, DeRay, uh, is that they also asked about how people are feeling. So uh, they asked whether people are feeling down, depressed, or hopeless several days or more over the past week. And you know, looking at these numbers, it was really fascinating because it shows that younger people are much more likely to report having felt depressed over several days or more in the past week than those who report not feeling depressed. Uh, and that that shifts as you increase in age. So uh, for folks who are above the age of 49, the majority of them are saying that they did not feel depressed recently compared to those who are younger having a majority saying that they did feel depressed. Um, and you know, this is not what I would think, um, given that obviously COVID has done damage all across society, but in particular for folks who are older, um, you know, it has been a particular risk. And for folks who are in uh, nursing homes and in other elder care facilities, it's been a particular risk. Um, but just seeing the numbers uh, in the survey showing that younger people were the ones saying that they uh, were more likely to feel depressed than older folks was just fascinating. And so, so that was just like interesting in the polling and would love to learn more about sort of what's going on sort of in the details there. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group 
where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. I live by routines, especially my same-day delivery routine with Shipped. Because when Sunday rolls around, I'm not scared. I got my shopper on the way with all my favorites. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at Shipped.com. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. Gregory Washington is the new president of George Mason University, a black man, and in addition to overseeing the complicated issues of reopening a school during a pandemic, he's also implemented some anti-racist policies for the college. Here's our conversation about these issues. Let's go. Gregory Washington, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. It's great to be here. I think that you might be the first president of a university that we've had on the pod, actually, in three years. Like, So I'm excited, uh, excited to talk to you. This is an interesting time to be a leader in education at any level because uh, this is unprecedented. Uh, but before we talk about that, can you talk about your path to even getting to uh, to lead a university? Like, what does that, how, how, how does one do that? <laughs> well, it's a, it is an arduous process. I will tell you, the, to say the least, it starts by your past experience, and most university presidents are academics. They come through uh, the academic crucible, starting most likely as an assistant professor and then working their way up through a full professor and and then taking on some administrative jobs, of which all of which I've done in my career. I started off at Ohio State University and then uh, moved to the University of California, Irvine, before becoming here. And, and, and it was a series of academic appointments. At Ohio State, I did my first administrative job, which was to lead the OSU Institute of Energy and Environment. I led that entity, and then I became the associate dean for research for the whole College of Engineering. And from that job, became uh, the interim dean at Ohio State, and then left Ohio State to be dean at Irvine. And uh, and then from there, came here. So. I have been at it. I took my first administrative job in probably 2005, 2006, and have been working ever since then in this space. But I've been a professor since the 1990s, 1995. Oh, whoa. Do you still, do you teach, I mean, I mean, what is teaching right now? When, what is university? What is, what is school given COVID? You, you made the comment that, you know, this is the first time you've had a president of the university on Pod Save the People, and I guess because now we're really saving the people. <laughs> I mean, this is... Re- re- this is really? Funny. Truly? <laughs> Do you still teach? Oh, well, I'm not teaching currently. In, in most of my previous administrative jobs, I did do some teaching. I think it's important to try to stay close to the classroom. And I probably will teach over the next uh, year or two while I'm here. I probably will teach a class or two. If nothing more than to be able to look my faculty in the eye and say, look, I get it. I know what you're dealing with right now. Uh, it, it will it will be something that I will do. Now, last question before before we jump into what it means to be a college president is, did you, what was your favorite class to teach when you did teach? <laughs> so I, I, I do work in the area of automation and control. That is my expertise. I'm an engineer by training. Mechanical and aerospace uh, is where I hold my degrees. I like to teach people in, in terms of how to move an object from one point to another, how to control the movement of that object. And it's, it's control theory, and that's the kind of thing that really excites me academically. I love it. 
control theory. I don't even know really what that means. I mean, I heard you say it, but I'm going to go Google control theory. Is there a part of control theory that I would know in my regular life or no? I would, there's no reason why I'd know that. Would I? Actually, actually, believe it or not, much of what we're dealing with now start, is starting to fit into the confines of control theory, right? So remember, it's all about being able to start at point A and move to point B and, and, and follow a trajectory of how to get there. And you can uh, change your inputs and outputs, and sometimes you can change your environment in order to help you get from point A to point B. And uh, you're involved in movement. You're involved with all sorts of endeavors where you're dealing with large numbers of people. Well, that can be envisioned as a system. And how do you move that system from point A to point B? That's the thing that excites me. Um, And people have tried to take control theory and use it to say, how do we engage and manage large groups of people? How do we look at world economies? And can we actually modify and move world economies and move them from one point to another? So all of those aspects are things that excite me. Got it. Okay. You actually got me thinking about something really interesting here, and that is how could you manage a movement? Are there, are there ways of taking some of the traditional uh, mathematical and theoretical tools that we have and being able to employ them? You know, you're involved in Black Lives Matter and all those other things. I, I wonder if, because everything that happens is organic, right? It kind of springs up out of the people, right? And and so I wonder if there are ways to harness that energy in a, in a manner that continues to move that movement to an outcome that we would all like to see as positive. I don't know. I don't know the answer to those questions, but these are the kind of things that excite me. I love it. Now, now you recently became the president of uh, a university, George Mason. Can you just help us understand like the demographics of the school first before we go into uh, sort of deeper questions about what it's like to lead? So I will tell you, so George Mason is, it's the largest, most diverse institution in the state of Virginia. Um, it is what we would call an institution with no majority. Uh, there's no one racial and ethnic group that has more than 50% of the population here at George Mason. And we have well over 38,000 students. And so uh, we have a significant number of African-American students, uh, significant numbers of Latinx students. Uh, We have Asian-American students, a smaller population of international students than what most of our peers have. And we have a significant uh, population of Caucasian students as well. And why did you choose to become president? Like, was this on your was, was this a career goal? Like, how did you how did you end up at this school? You know, I want to talk about race on campus. Even at, like, what does it mean to be on campus right now? Because you know, COVID. And what are the decisions like? What is it, what do you do every day? What is it? I don't know. What is it like to wake up as a college president these days? Given that. Almost all of the things that you would normally do, something about them has changed. So, like research on campus, I'm interested in what that looks like in the in a time of COVID. Sports, uh, community, like faculty appointments, like that whole game. I have a lot of questions. So, let's just start. Uh, let's start with how, why George Mason. I reached a point in my career where I had been a dean for more than 13 years, 13, 14 years, and at that point. You kind of know that job. I mean, you start asking yourself, you say, look, is this kind of the job I want to do for the rest of my life? And my answer to that question was no. And so I started to look at what steps remained in an academic sense. And there were only two jobs. The dean reports to someone who's called the provost or who's the chief academic officer of the campus. And then that person reports to a president. So there were really only two jobs above where I was, and, and, and so, the, so I started looking in, at opportunities in those spaces. And, you know, you ask the question, well, how, how did Mason come about? It, it is interesting. Um, people kind of led me to Mason. I didn't discover Mason. Mason kind of discovered me. It, it was a series of individuals who knew many of the things that I was involved with on the national level who kept pointing me to this institution. I, we set up a, uh, an, an infrastructure to help grow the number of African-American undergrads and uh, PhDs who had 
engineering degrees. I, I, so I, I led a national effort to do that. We put a national program in place. We did the same thing for women and Latinx students. And as people began to know that I was involved in that kind of thing, they said, you know, there's this institution over here who's doing some of the same things we think you should consider them. And, and I've done a lot with community engagement, having the university not just sit in the community, but actually truly be a part of that community. We, you know, the institutions must be vital uh, to the community, not just as an entity that provides jobs for people, but also as an entity that goes in those communities and is actually engaged in help. And, and, and we had done that kind of thing in Spades and, and Irvine. And, you know, individuals said, well, there's this institution out of D.C., you know, right near D.C. who's doing similar things. You should look into them. They're looking for a president. So it happened like that. There was, you know, when three or four people tell you you need to look at this place, you finally say, okay, I'm going to take a look at it. And the more I looked at it, the more I became attracted to what was happening here. And that's kind of what, what led to me interviewing for the job and going through that really long process of getting it. You know, in terms of what do we do every day, we really planned the academic and the operational direction of the university, and we managed that on a day-to-day basis. I will tell you right now, these jobs are really, really difficult. Academia, as we know it, is being shifted under our feet, and uh, it is changing in a dramatic way. Putting up with that change and figuring out how to manage it, an institution like this one, I got 10,000 employees. Right, and I'm probably using four thousand of them right now, maybe five thousand. And so, what do you do with the other five thousand people? These aren't easy decisions, and so it's a tough, tough job right now. What are the decisions that you've made around coronavirus? How has that impacted school? Who's on campus? Is anybody on campus? Are they coming back to campus? Like, what are the things that you have to consider when you are even in the meetings? I can only, you know, I used to lead human capital for the school system in Baltimore. And I can think about the gazillion decisions we would have to make or conversations we'd have to entertain when we did things that were, we thought were really hard, but nothing seems as complicated as this moment. Right. So right now we have somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 students on campus. Uh, we normally will have 6,500 students on campus. And, and, and so we're a little less than half of our capacity in terms of total number of students. Just to put that in perspective, just so you you can get an idea of what that means, the average student on campus in terms of the cost of their room and in terms of their meal plans and the food they eat on campus will spend about $12,000 a year. That's the average. Those 3,500 students who are not here, that's $40 million gone. Right? And you say, well, what is that $40 million used for? Well, it's used to support not just those students on campus, but all of the other aspects of upkeep associated with maintaining an institution. And so now what am I doing? I'm figuring out how to cover that $40-plus million hole. Actually, when you add up all of the costs associated with COVID, it's bigger than that. And uh, so we brought that 3,000 students back for two reasons. One, I'm of the belief that we're not going to get past COVID anytime soon. I, I hear the president talking about a vaccine, and look, Lord knows, I hope we get one. Uh, but even if we get a vaccine, I'm an engineer, and so I understand how things are made. That vaccine has to be manufactured. Then that vaccine has to be distributed. And then you've got to say what is going to be the community uptake. I mean, how many people are going to allow that shot to go in there to their arms? And when you add that all up, it will be easily we'll be late into next year before we have enough people immunized, presuming the vaccine works as planned before we're ready to call this thing over. We're, we're going to be at least be the rest of this academic year in some state of managing with the virus. We, we might as well learn how to live with it. We might as well learn how to educate people because the education of our country cannot stop. Right? It can't, and it can't shift to being totally online either. Uh, there are times where we need to be in a more face-to-face setting in order to make it work, in order for people to actually learn. And there are people who don't learn well when they're looking at a screen. My philosophy is that you're going to have to figure out how to live with it 
We got great people on our campuses who all they do is think, and they're brilliant. If anybody can figure out these problems and figure out solutions, individuals on our academic campuses should be able to do that. That's the main reason, the main driver for us. And the other one is, if, if we were to totally shut down or totally go online, I don't know what kind of uh, entity we would have economically on the way back. We would literally have to lay off thousands of people. You would be laying them off into an environment where those individuals can't find jobs. If I could figure out a way to do this and do it safely, that's the best alternative. Figure out a way to do it and to do it safely. I know it's a hard task, but guess what? That's why we have academic institutions to solve the burning challenges that face the, the world and the country today. Have you had to do any layoffs at all so far? No, we, uh, we, we, we've been fortunate in that we've been able to manage. We had, we've had reserves that we're using currently to, for rainy day, and <laughs> that's exactly what this is. If this is not a rainy day, I don't know what is. So we, we're, we're utilizing reserves. We've repurposed people. In terms of they had one job, we've modified those jobs to do other jobs. And, and then we are planning and managing for uh, what that new reality will look like when it comes on the backside of this. And so all of those mechanisms are the ways in which we're managing right now. And will you still be able to bring on, I'm assuming that there must have been hiring goals and for new faculty or... I don't know. Have you seen anything about class enrollment change or drop or what does that look like? Or is it still too early? And then how did you choose the 3000 students? We prioritize students based on how far they were away from campus. So if they lived 10 miles from campus, it was, it was less likely that you're going to get a dorm room than if you lived a thousand miles from campus. That's really how we did our first cut in the reductions. And then some students decided they just wanted to, you know, not be on campus. They wanted to be online. So it was a series of uh, reductions that got us down to the 3,000 number. To answer your other question in terms of overall enrollment, it's up, actually. We're up 2.2%, uh, which is amazing. If, if you would have asked me back in March or even in February when I took this job, that would it be possible that in September our enrollment for the fall would be higher than what it was, I would have told you, absolutely no way. We we're growing because, you know, I think people are realizing you still have to get educated, uh, that we can't sit this out, that the world actually has to figure out a way to, to move on and continue to operate. And the human race must go on. Education is a big part of what it means to be human. Yeah, that is, you know, enrollment up isn't what I thought. You know, there are lots of institutions who are down right now. I, I will tell you that. So I don't want you to think uh, that everybody is up. So there are a number of our peer institutions who are down. We're up. We have been relatively uh, fairly aggressive in going after and attracting students. We've been very, very deliberate about making the population and the public uh, understand that this represents a shift for us, but we're not going to buy out of the educational process, that we're going to be there for our students, and we're going to continue to give them the highest and best education possible, and, and, and the community is rewarding us for doing that. I mean, that's the reality of the situation. Also, we're in an area of the country that's growing in population, and that population growth in Northern Virginia, people are, are saying to themselves, do I want to leave and go all the way across the country to go to school with all this uncertainty, or is there a really good school nearby that I can go to and uh, that my parents can get to, or the parents are saying that to the kid, I need to be able to get to you if something uh, crazy happens. You know, so we're a great option for that. And we've been a relatively safe campus. You know, if large campuses in Virginia, we have the fewest cases of COVID-19. Uh, we have 22 cases now. We started bringing students back to campus in, on August 9th. So we haven't had uh, the big burst of uh, cases that you hear at many other institutions because we, we've done some innovative things, you know. Students don't have to go out for their food here. The food is delivered to them by robots, which is a really cool thing to see. You know, one of the more unfortunate things is that we really clamp down on student congregate activity like parties. You know, we really limit how students have parties here. You can't have, 
an entity with 150, 200, 300 people in a house party. And we enforce it. We've coupled with our student organizations and with our public safety on campus, and we, we enforce that mandate. And then we have a whole host of rigorous testing strategies, uh, from pre-testing to surveillance testing to diagnostic testing. You know, universities are good at giving tests. And so we're just given a whole bunch of tests uh, relative to COVID in order to make sure we keep people as safe as possible. And when we do get a case, uh, we box it in uh, around the student and that student's uh, connections. And, uh, and since we haven't allowed students to have big parties, when we do find a case, we don't run into the, the next step where that person was just at a party with 150 other people. Right, which is what many universities are dealing with right now, and, and so that's kind of what's helped us. There we go. What um, what advice do you have for parents or for students trying to navigate the education system in a moment like this? Not to give up on their educational goals. This is going to pass. There will be a time that we will move on past this. You, you know, when you say, "What do you tell a student?" I'll tell them what I told my two youngsters. I got one who's a junior at Ohio State University and one who just started as a freshman in the same institution this year. I tell them what I told generations of students before them, and that is, what do you dream? Pursue your dreams. And this is what I add to that. Be careful. Wear a mask. Don't party. Wash your hands. Take care of yourself. Limit your congregate behavior. And if you do those things, you're probably going to be all right, even when there's chaos all around you. There we go. I also did want to talk to you about uh, the anti-racism work that's happening at George Mason, and what does that look like? We have launched a major anti-racism initiative. We have a task force of more than 100 faculty and staff who are working on this. And the idea here is to look at every single aspect of how we operate and how we do business, from our classroom experience to our sports teams, you know, even down to the names of our buildings and food service and the like. And and, and the idea is where we find vestiges of institutional racism, goal number one is to call them out, get the information out there, and goal number two is to put mechanisms in place to correct it. It sounds like a very simple strategy, and I'll be honest with you, the best strategies are simple. It's really about finding people with the right level of commitment I have put uh, real money behind this effort. I don't want at the end, you know, even though, look, we're at a time where we are strapped for cash. I tell people I'm 50 cents away from a quarter. But for those things that are your highest priorities, you find resources to manage them. And and we've been able to put about $5 million as an initial down payment uh, towards our task force and towards the work that that task force will do this year. And the idea is at the end of this year, we will, re- we will reevaluate it. And if we need to put more resources behind it, we'll do that uh, in next year. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Well, I look forward to it. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Explore the world's hidden wonders on the Atlas Obscura podcast, a village in India where everyone's name is a song, a boiling river in the Amazon, a spacecraft cemetery in the middle of the ocean. Every day, the Atlas Obscura podcast will blow your mind in 15 minutes. You can find it on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.